This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we talk with Dr. Michael Peel, the Chief Executive Officer of Immunomedics, at this year's annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, held in Chicago, Illinois, June 1st to 5th, 2018. This year's conference theme is Delivering Discoveries, Expanding the Reach of Precision Medicine. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogene Brief. The annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, is the world's leading organization of its kind and promotes the highest quality patient care through fostering research, education, and collaboration in oncology. At this year's meeting, nearly 40,000 attendees gather to discuss the growing body of data on advanced, difficult-to-treat diseases that do not have many treatment options. Immunomedics is a biopharmaceutical company dedicated to improving health and health-related quality of life for patients with cancer, autoimmune, and other serious diseases. In our interview, we speak to Dr. Peel about some of the exciting developments that are taking place at this year's meeting, including some of the data that his company presented about advancements in the development of targeted anti-cancer drugs, such as antibody drug conjugates. Traditional chemotherapy often fails to treat advanced or metastatic forms of cancer. This is because while chemotherapy disrupts tumors, it also harms other healthy cells. In turn, this makes it difficult to deliver potent anti-cancer drugs without causing too much harm to healthy cells. Antibody drug conjugates, also known as ADCs, on the other hand, are a form of targeted anti-cancer drugs that are able to target tumor cells while sparing healthy cells. This means that more of an anti-cancer drug can be delivered to the tumor with less side effects. However, Developing successful antibody drug conjugates has remained a challenge for several decades. And to date, only four different forms of antibody drug conjugates have been approved for the treatment of various forms of cancers. We speak with Dr. Peel about some of the latest data presented about a first-in-class drug and how antibody drug conjugates can be used for the treatment of advanced or metastatic triple-negative breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most common tumor type worldwide. And 10 to 20% of breast cancers are what is called triple negative breast cancer. In this type of cancer, the tumor cells lack the expression or amplification of targetable biomarkers, such as receptors for estrogen, progesterone, and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, also known as HER2. Because in this type of cancer, the cancer does not have the most common types of receptors known to fuel the most cancer growth, common treatments like hormone therapy and drugs that target estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 are ineffective hence the name triple negative. Using chemotherapy to treat triple negative breast cancer is still an effective option. In fact, triple negative breast cancer may respond even better to chemotherapy in the earlier stages than many other forms of cancer. But this type of cancer is extremely hard to treat and generally has a poor prognosis. As many as 50% of patients diagnosed with early stage triple negative breast cancer, that is stages 1 to 3, experience disease recurrence, and 37% of patients die in the first five years after surgery. And while it is true, as mentioned earlier, that patients with metastatic or advanced triple-negative breast cancer may respond to chemotherapy, they do not always respond very well to traditional chemotherapy. These patients typically see a medium progression-free survival of only three to four months after failure of first-line chemotherapy. Now, who are at risk for triple-negative breast cancer? 
As mentioned earlier, the disease occurs in about 10 to 20% of patients diagnosed with breast cancer. The disease is also more likely to affect younger people, African Americans, Hispanics, and or those with the BRCA1 gene mutation. In general, triple negative breast cancer can be more aggressive and difficult to treat. Also, the cancer is more likely to spread and recur. The stage of breast cancer and the grade of the tumor will influence the prognosis. For anti-cancer drug developers and oncologists treating this type of breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer is a major unmet medical need. In our interview, Dr. Peel shares with us some of the developments in precision medicines for cancer, such as antibody drug conjugates, and how they can hopefully help us meet this need. Let's listen. Here at uh, ASCO, we are uh, meeting with uh, Michael Peel. Um, he is the CEO of uh, Immunomedics, um, and we talk with him about some of the developments um, uh, dealing with an antibody drug conjugate that uh, the company uh, has, uh, is developing uh, some of the new indications of the drug, but also some of the reasons um, why this drug may be different than some of the other therapeutics that are out there, uh, maybe different than some of the other antibody drugs that are out there. Let's uh, first start with the news. Um, you, uh, a company during the ASCO meeting, you're presenting some interesting news mm-hmm. uh, out about uh, your company as well as as a drug. Uh, <laughs> Sasitutumab Covitican. Sasitutumab Covitican, okay. Um, and I have to rehearse that a couple of times. Um, it's a first-in-class ADC, um, yeah. and it is in advanced development. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the history of this drug? Mm-hmm. No, thanks, uh, Peter, and, and great to be with you guys. So uh, Sasitutumab Covitican is part of a platform of ADCs that uh, Immunomedics has, and and what you've been saying, Peter, is right. Um, the platform is differentiated and different to other ADCs in a couple of aspects. And maybe this is a good starting point uh, to explain why we are so excited about it and uh, key opinion leaders are as well. ADCs, um, um, I don't need to tell you that, uh, have an antibody and then they have a linker and they have a payload. And traditionally, uh, the antibody and uh, uh, the payload are combined with a very stable linker. The reason for that is very simple, um, because the, the payload for most of the ADCs is a very toxic payload. So the antibody binds to the epithelial uh, tumor cell, is internalized, and then uh, the, the payload is enzymatically cleaved off. So that's the way... Usually, uh, how ADCs are working. The ADC platform of immunomedics is not quite that way. So we have an antibody, and we and we think we have some great targets to go after. The target actually for our lead product, Sasituzumab Covitican, is TROP2. Uh, it's very broadly expressed on epithelial tumors. So the ADC binds, uh, and then two things are happening, and that's a difference uh, to what's happening with the other ADCs. So the ADC is either internalized. Uh, and uh, the payload is released. But uh, as the linker is not stable, but it's hydrolyzable, so you Mm -hmm. can also use the word it's semi-stable. But uh, the payload is actually released over time. So the ADC doesn't have to go into the cell in order to kill the cell or cells around the cells where you're binding. It can also sit outside of the cell. 
And we think this is an advantage because especially when you have metastatic disease and large tumors, not every uh, of these tumor cells may actually express the same amount of antigen or the antigen at all. So you have a bystander killing effect. So that's one differentiating factor. The other factor is by using what uh, uh, people would call kind of a more traditional payload. So we're using the um, active uh, metabolite of irinotecan, which is a topoisomerase one. Um, and this is a lex- less toxic payload as compared to the other ADC. So what you can achieve by these things is finding a really good balance between very high efficacy, mm-hmm. but through the less toxic payload also uh, very tolerable drug. So we think from a benefit-risk perspective, um, the drug is actually really standing out. Okay, let's take a short break here. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Peel, the CEO of Immunomedics, at the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosine Brief. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. And welcome back. This is the Oncosine Brief. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Michael Peel, the CEO of Immunomedics, about some of the exciting news and abstracts presented at the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which took place June 1st to 5th in Chicago, Illinois. The theme of this year's meeting is Delivering Discoveries, Expanding the Reach of Precision Medicine. Let's go back to the program. So, in understanding the kind of drug it is, um, an antibody drug conjugate being able to be being very targeted. Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, the payload that's being used, that is more or less a traditional chemotherapeutic drug, mm-hmm. less toxic, uh, yeah. less toxic, mm-hmm. uh, but it is also used in different, but very effective, right? Yeah. In, it also used in different, um, not in the form of an ADC, um, is being used in different um, treatments. Irinotecan is, uh, that's the mother compound, right? and the mother compound is actually metabolized in the liver to the active form, which is SN38. Right. Uh, a lot of the uh, metabolites that are uh, part of this transformation from irinotecan to SN38 are responsible for the toxicity. So if you're working with the active metabolite, mm-hmm. you already have an advantage. SN38 by itself is not easy to use because it's, it's not very soluble. Mm-hmm. It's short-lived. 
So the idea was actually really to kind of use that active metabolite and bind it to an antibody. To make it, to make it like, stable. Make it almost like a prodrug. Exactly. To make it stable. Uh, and so SN38 itself is not used. Irinotecan is used, but comes along with some difficulties. Mm-hmm. As a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, it has uh, hematological toxicity and gastrointestinal toxicity. SN38, as a matter of fact, when it's bound to the antibody and brought to the tumor, has much less side effects. So the hematological toxicity goes down, the gastrointestinal toxicity goes down, but you can enhance the concentration of the active metabolite of the tumor. So that's, that's the whole trick here. Right. Make, making a better drug out of something of that recirculates. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So beyond looking at this drug, the drug is being used in, um, in, in a very difficult-to-treat disease, uh, triple-negative breast cancer. Now, give me a little bit of a description of triple-negative breast cancer and why it is so difficult to mm-hmm. treat. And it really comes with the word triple negative because a lot of the progress that has been made in the the past decade in breast cancer comes through targeted therapies against HER2, which is an antigen, uh, um, and you can use an antibody against it, uh, against uh, uh, hormone receptors, Mm -hmm. and you can use therapies against it. Uh, The problem of triple negative breast cancer is it's not expressing these uh, antigens, so you can't use targeted therapies. Now, what our drug is done, and I think that's the first step, what the company has been figuring out is there is actually uh, an antigen on on those triple negative breast cancer cells that you can use for targeting. So Mm -hmm. that's a a big first step. Um, Due to the fact that there is no targeted therapies available, uh, the uh, only available therapy for these patients is chemotherapy. And when patients are in a metastatic state and when they saw one or two chemotherapies beforehand, they have a very bad prognosis, very low response rate, very low duration of response. Uh, and that's the duration of response in terms of weeks that you're talking about. Right. Uh, and actually, when you're thinking about the overall survival, these patients have a prognosis like an acute leukemia patient. It's probably a fair way to, to think about it. If you are an advanced metastatic triple negative breast cancer patient, your prognosis is as bad as a patient with AML. Right. Uh, no, no drug has been approved for these patients. And we are, have been uh, running uh, studies in those patients and came, coming up with data and also data that we've been now using for our submission that show very good response rates, long duration of response for those patients, and a very good uh, um, tolerability profile. And that was absolute, the basis for our submission that actually happened right. two weeks ago. Now, talking about that submission, um, there is a presentation here at ESCO? There is a presentation about another very important group of patients which are expressing the hormone receptor, so-called HR or ER-positive mm-hmm. metastatic breast cancer patients. These patients are usually starting when they're metastatic with hormone therapy. Uh, the hormone therapy is now these days combined with, uh, with CKD uh, for six inhibitors. Uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors, and you have or have not the chance to give mTOR inhibitors, but then the the hormonal therapy comes to an end and patients are progressing, and then chemotherapy kicks in. Usually these patients get antracyclines, uh, they get uh, a kind of one line of taxanes, but if patients undergo hormone therapy, uh, CKI, and one line of chemo, their prognosis is as bad as it is for the patients with triple negative breast cancer. And that's where we are actually very excited, and key opinion leaders are also, uh, when we're looking at our data, we have response rates above 30% um, compared to the usual low teens that you get with chemotherapy in that setting. And we will certainly talk uh, tomorrow also about the duration and the progression-free survival of these patients, which we again feel 
is a is a great segue and a starting point for a pivotal journey that we want to take. Right. Now, I want to circle back a little bit to triple negative breast cancer um, and the kind of patients uh, that are suffering from this particular aggressive disease. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the patient population. Yeah, as I was trying to say, um, at the starting point is is we all uh, and knowing patients with breast cancer, and mm-hmm. I think many of us uh, know these patients in their uh, families and and, right. and friends and and breast cancer patients are not all the same. And when you talk into a patient with triple negative breast cancer, um, their feel is that they are a neglected group of patients because all the progress that has been made with all these new drugs and all the approvals. Uh, is not progress that they have been experiencing. And and their disease is much more aggressive biologically. They have a very different pattern of metastasis. Very often they have brain metastasis, for example, and metastasis of the organs as compared to bone metastasis. That's what other uh, patients with breast cancer are having. Uh, they have a much higher risk of relapse after initial therapy. So the whole biology is different. The prognosis is much worse, like an acute leukemia patient, and there's no drugs available for mm-hmm. these patients. So it's actually really a neglected group of patients. Uh, and it's not a small group. It's around about 10 to 15% of all the patients uh, with metastatic breast cancer. And we are very, very happy and fortunate to finally, hopefully, bring progress to these patients. Right. Um, Now, some subject matters that may um, not necessarily dealing with your company, uh, but more in a broader scope of um, ASCO, um, some of the treatment options that are out Mm -hmm. there. Uh, You've been here now for uh, maybe a day, maybe a little bit longer, uh, looking at some of the the advances in in clinical development in in, in oncology. Um, Other than the very great news that you are actually bringing for a very specific patient population. What are some of the the things that excite you outside of this area? I think it's a great point, and it starts with, and that's tangible, with this increasingly good understanding and deep understanding of the biology of the diseases that we are dealing with. Mm-hmm. That's actually an area where, although we are still a small company, we are investing a lot, understanding the biology of our target, the impact that it has uh, in predictive terms, in in prognostic terms, not just as a target, um, relapse patterns of those patients. Um, I think the basis of making a real step forward for all of those indications uh, that you see here at ASCO is this very thorough and deep understanding of not just the target, but the biology of the disease. And that's exactly what we try to do, to do the next step. And there's certainly a lot of exciting data here in the areas that are interesting for us with checkpoint inhibitors, PARP inhibitors. Mm -hmm. What we want to figure out uh, together with other companies is to identify the exact patient population and define it molecularly um, that then gets the right combinatorial approach in order to improve their prognosis. So what always excites me when I come to these meetings is the progress and the acceleration of the understanding of the biology Mm -hmm. and we absolutely uh, are and will be part of this and that allows us to then very targeted select the right combinatorial approach that we want to go together with our clinical partnerships that we are building up. Let's take a short break here. (laughs) 
Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Welcome back. This is the Oncozine Brief. And if you're just joining us, we're joined by Dr. Michael Peel, the CEO of Immunomedics, at the 2018 Annual Meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Let's get back to the program. So you addressed there um, the ability to understand the biology. Um, that comes also with maybe different forms of diagnostic tests. Um, more uh, personalized approach or targeted or precision medicine, as people sometimes call it. Um, now, looking at your drug, I mean, are, is there a need for a companion diagnostics? Is, is that mm-hmm. one of the things to help um, that you and the, the, the clinicians that actually treat patients to really pinpoint this drug is something that really would work with you? Now, that's a very important question. And in, in, in breast cancer, in urothelial cancer, in non-small cell lung cancer, for example, the expression of TROP2 is very high. More than 90% of patients have a moderate or high expression of TROP2. There is other indications of interest, uh, head and neck cancer, for mm-hmm. example, where it's lower. So this is where you start to need to think about companion diagnostic and and patient screening and selection. Um, what I was also trying to, to kind of bring across is, is not just based on the expression of TROP2, but kind of the molecular basis of the, of the disease of patients and patient subgroups. We have options to combine our drug with chemotherapy. Right. We have options to combine with checkpoint inhibitors. Mm-hmm. We have options to combine with PARP inhibitors. We, we, what we don't want to do is just throw combinations at patients and then see whether it works. We want to have a really good understanding of the mode of action and whether or not that fits into this exact subgroup that we are targeting. So thinking about precision medicine, I mm-hmm. think that understanding of where to put which combinatorial approach is exactly kind of the direction that we would like to take. And key opinion leaders are very excited about it. Right, and that has to do with... Um, really the, the the approach that you see at ASCO and at other organizations being taken when you when you look at um, um, where are we going to take cancer treatment Absolutely. Uh, that that you know the individual rather voilà. than than, than voilà. the group of patients exactly right that's the big difference and i think that's absolutely the direction that right. we need to take now now one of the things that we also hear here at ASCO um, is um, um, it's a subject matter that maybe uh, difficult for a company in general, um, but when you look at clinical trials, for example, um, per definition, clinical trials have a, a lot of exclusion criteria. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've been talking about with clinicians. It's a talk with regulators. So for the past, uh, we've been talking about, about uh, the, the different people from the different medical organizations, um, which is great because that means that you can actually test or look at a drug uh, from a clean perspective. Now. If you look, and that is actually something that I definitely like to see with, with, with a drug like this, I mean, the real world, 
does not have exclusion criteria. I mean, uh, what is t- so when you look at a drug like this that you're developing, um, uh, how does that work? A clinical trial in yeah. comparison with the value that you see in, in, in for patients in a clinic? Because a clin- I think you're making a very, very important point. And, and I think that's an important point for treating physicians and for patients. Right? Mm-hmm. And I agree with you that when we are selecting uh, and coming up with criteria for making our clinical trials successful and being able to show a difference with a certain likelihood, we're excluding certain patient populations. I would make, like to make two points in that regard. Number one is every development and every approval of a drug, I think, comes along with the need for very thorough uh, side effect management of patients because the patients that you are seeing in the real life may be older, may be more fragile, maybe have have more comorbidities. And the worst thing that can happen is a drug like ours in the hand of someone who has not been thoroughly educated by us Mm -hmm. and through the literature. And that's something we absolutely want to make sure and we put a lot of effort into it. The second answer that I want to give is that we, when we're thinking outside of the U.S., a lot of the, and uh, you're coming from a country uh, where reimbursement uh, and the economic benefit is actually tied to uh, showing the value in real-life populations. Absolutely. So we are in the situation where we have to come up uh, with the uh, data for the real-life population very, very early on. There's great ways to do it uh, mm-hmm. now. There's data sets available that were not available f- five to ten years ago. But if you even think about getting reimbursement in Europe, and that's something that we absolutely want to do, and if you think about having successful discussions also with payers here in the mm-hmm. U.S., you have to come up uh, with real-life data. I think there is a natural sequence of things here. As a company, you start with your pivotal study. Uh, you want to make sure that, as we've been discussing, you come up with the right um, life cycle plan and combinatorial approaches according to the enhanced understanding of the study. But I'm very thankful that you say this. There is a third very important element, which is uh, the value proposition in a broad population and the ability to show and showcase that in a, in a meaningful way. And that's exactly what our next step is going to look like. That combined with a very thorough education on uh, the profile of the drug, the side effects uh, of the drug, but then also how to treat and prevent side effects. We're, mm-hmm. go- we're going to take this very, very, very serious. Every patient that you're losing through side effects, for me, is a tragedy. Right. Uh, that brings also the, uh, the, the next question to some extent. If you look at um, clinical trials, um, about 4 to 5% of um, uh, people that are actually diagnosed with a particular form of cancer or overall participation in clinical trials is between 4 and 5% mm-hmm. roughly. Um, how can you, you increase that number? So there was a study presented either today or tomorrow, I'm not sure, um, which actually talks about eliminating the inclusion or exclusion, the exclusion criteria. What they came up with as a result is that it may ultimately yield 1% in increase in participation in a clinical trial. Um, of that clinical trials of those people that actually participate, the larger number are white male <coughs> or female patients. Um, yeah. And we're not talking about yeah. a lot of people that are either black or Hispanic. In, in, in yeah. that. So in order to get a better ID or f- functioning about, about, about clinical trials, how can we include or 
increase the number of patients that participate in clinical trials. At the same time, maybe increase the number of, of blacks and Hispanics that might increase in, in, in that particular way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, that, is, that has always been an issue, and it unfortunately still is an issue. Um, there is, by the way, indications that are doing slightly better than other indications, um, and we should learn from them when we're looking at some of the hematological malignancies. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make an argument that the proportion of patients going into those studies is significantly higher. So I think, as a starting point, uh, trying to learn from each other uh, and, and see what others are doing well or not so well is a, is a great starting point, number one. Number two is, is I think there's an obligation of communication um, to start with um, when it comes to clinical studies, not just in clinicaltrials.gov, but to the patient organizations and using all the wonderful, in that case, wonderful new media opportunities that you're having and having a credible communication with caregivers and patients so that they understand the value uh, and the purpose of a clinical study and how they can profit from that. I think the third thing, and we've been touching upon that, I, I, I personally believe that, that you, you could position it as participation in clinical studies. I would say like the ability to document the efficacy and um, the benefit-risk profile of a drug um, Throughout, and not just during pivotal studies or in phase one, phase two, or phase three, but throughout, back to kind of this notion of we want to have real life data mm-hmm. in order to learn how well we are doing and how we, how, how we can improve upon how, where we're given the drug, how we're given the drug, and how we're doing with the side effects. That's a very important part of it. Right. And, and I think that's something where we as an industry can certainly do much better. I can assure you that this is something that we're going to do a lot. Right. Uh, if you bring a drug like ours into late-line populations, you want to understand how patients are doing. You want to have metrics and being able to measure whether the side effect recommendations that you're giving are working or are not working. Right. And so that's another area where we are going to put a lot of effort in because we feel everybody's profiting from thorough documentation and review of how's the drug doing. Are we doing well? Are the physicians doing well? And then ultimately, of course, that leads to the question, is pa- are patients doing well? Now, that means, for example, larger population-based studies, maybe observational studies and registries. And I think there's, there's ways how you can do it. There's also wonderful ways now of, of electronic data capture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's multiple ways, and we are all exploring all of them. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Peel, the CEO of Immunomedics, at the 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncocene Brief. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. And welcome back. This is the Oncosin Brief. And if you're just joining us, we are talking with Dr. Michael Peel, the CEO of Immunomedics, about some of the exciting news and abstracts presented at a 2018 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. Let's go back to the program. Now, 
in, in summing up some of the things that we were talking about, if you look at uh, ADCs, um, the drug that we are talking about today is one of the ADCs that you have in mm-hmm. development. Uh, there are also other ADCs others. that you have in development. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, they follow the same principle that I was uh, explaining in the beginning of uh, hydrolyzable linker and then using SN38 as a payload. Mm-hmm. But they go for other targets. So TROP2 is uh, the target to go after for our lead assets, sasituzumab. Uh, we have another asset in clinical development, which goes after a very exciting target, which is CCAM5, which mm-hmm. is broadly expressed in colorectal cancer, but also in GI cancers. And we have some pretty exciting initial clinical data where we see responses and a lot of uh, clinical benefit in patients that were previously treated with ironotica, mm-hmm. so the mother compound. It's pretty stunning to see that patients who are in late treatment lines and saw the mother compound and then were relapsing after it still have this clinical benefit. Um, so we think um, CCAM5 is definitely the next um, uh, of our EDC uh, pipeline uh, that we're going to put a lot of focus and emphasis on. And then we have a third one where we're just doing the IND enabling work against HLADR, which is a very exciting target for hematological malignancies, AML, for example, mm-hmm. which is still a totally underserved indication. So that's going to be the third major effort that we're taking. But we really try to take things step by step as a small company, right. focus on our submission, be successful, have our life cycle a plan executed in the indications of interest, and then finding enough capacity and focus to also um, develop the other assets that we're having. Okay. okay, I think that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. Immunomedics recently submitted a biologic license application to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for their new antibody drug conjugate for the treatment of patients with advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer who previously received at least two prior therapies for metastatic disease. If approved, sasituzumab govitecan would be the first and only antibody drug conjugate to be accepted for the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer in the United States. In the biologics license application, the company included the response rate from 108 patients who met the registrational criteria. Based on investigator assessment, 33% of these patients and 32% of patients based on independent central review met the criteria. The estimated median duration of response by local and central assessment was 8.3 months and 6.7 months, respectively. The median progression-free survival remained at 5.5 months. As part of the accelerated approval requirement, a confirmatory phase 3 trial called ASCENT in the same patient population is actively occurring patients in the U.S. and Europe. Beyond third-line treatment of metastatic or advanced triple-negative breast cancer, Immunomedics plans to launch a single-arm phase 2 study in the second and first-line triple-negative breast cancer setting. In this trial, they will be using the same drug as a single agent in in order to further characterize the efficacy and safety of this antibody drug conjugate based treatment in earlier treatment lines. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which took place June 1st through 5th in Chicago, Illinois. For more information about triple negative breast cancer, go to the website of the National Breast Cancer Foundation at nationalbreastcancer.org forward slash triple negative breast cancer. For more information about Immunomedics, please visit the company's website at immunomedics.com. And while we only have time to cover some of the exciting news and abstracts in our program, further coverage of the meeting can be found on our website at oncazine.com. For us here at the Oncazine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. 
Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can also listen to the Onkazine Brief via Independent Talk, 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal, Onkazine, at onkazine.com. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions, so please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. To help make this program possible, please visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. Your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring your interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. So please visit our page on patreon.com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. If you're listening in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word cancer, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866, and we'll make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Younger Scene Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pyrrhic at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602 443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist. Or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs.